Hi, I'm Morgan Eikensier, the tech and healthcare reporter for the Baltimore Business Journal, and welcome to another episode of our podcast, The Pivot. My guest on the podcast this month is Mark Weller, president of Weller Development Company, the firm behind the massive multi-billion dollar Port Covington project. The more than 200-acre project has been the subject of much controversy and intrigue over the past several years, and Mark said he is eager for folks to start seeing some vertical progress. The project's first phase, which officially kicked off in fall 2018, is promised to hold a collection of modern residences and offices, as well as restaurants, a food market, and plenty of space for meetings, co-working, and events. The plans are supported by hundreds of millions of dollars from Goldman Sachs Urban Investment Group, as well as a record TIF package awarded by the city. Weller Development is also actively pursuing funding through an Opportunity Zone designation. In this episode of The Pivot, I talk with Mark about how he got started transforming spaces, how a friendship with Kevin Plank grew into a successful business partnership, and what's to come in Port Covington. So let's get into it. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check out previous episodes of The Pivot on SoundCloud. So I'm here with Mark Weller, president of Weller Development Company. Thanks for coming in. Uh, first, a little bit about your personal history, how you got into development, and kind of what attracted you to this business. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me here today. I got in the uh, in the business or industry, if you want to call it that, really based on a couple of core principles, and uh, the principles where I really like to make things better than what they what they were when I first saw them, and, and create. I like to build. I like to add to the communities that I'm in. And when I was really young, it started with some really simple stuff. I used to do a, uh, I had my own landscaping business and uh, used to help my, my father around the house with his, with all the work that he needed done. And the deal was with him is I did his work for free and he gave me all the equipment, uh, you know, the garden tractors, lawn mowers, shovels, all that. And then I was able to use that same equipment to go out and uh, uh, pick up new clients uh, and, and make money uh, doing, doing other people in the neighborhood. So really early on, I realized uh, how much I enjoyed seeing my, my work at the end of the day and seeing, seeing my productivity at the end of the day. And I'll never forget one of, my, uh, one of my first big jobs that I got when I was uh, 15 years old with my original partner, uh, Rich Ward. We, uh, we had $1,000 worth of mulching and another $500 worth of geraniums to plant. Uh, it took us better part of a, probably a day and a half. And I remember looking back at the work. We were very dirty. We were very sweaty. We were getting ready to go. And I remember just standing there kind of looking at what we had done with this person's yard and thinking, geez, the fact that we just got paid to do that really, uh, really, makes, me, uh, really makes me enjoy what, uh, what I did. It really makes me understand uh, what it is that motivates me, which is, like I said, seeing something that I actually did or could do and, uh, and then actually getting paid for it was just kind of a bonus. So that translated from that type of work, which was flowers and geraniums, into uh, eventually into uh, new uh, home developments, which was townhouses and single-family houses, which eventually converted into larger developments, which eventually converted into mixed use. And instead of spending 18 or 24 hours to see the result of, uh, of my work now and sit back and, and look at it, I spent somewhere between five and 10 years uh, to see that same result. But it's the same feeling I had when I was uh, a young man, uh, really a kid at the time. And uh, quite frankly, the, the money is secondary. And uh, we believe that you know, if, if you do a great, great job, you do great work and, and you create great product, the money, money will be there. And so how did you initially get involved with Sagamore Development? 
and then how did Weller Development come to be? Well, I was uh, I was in Washington and uh, I had a really really great experience in Washington for many years. Built a lot of um, a lot of projects, both as a constructor and as a developer. And uh, at some point in 2007, 2008, I went on my own officially um, and formed a company called Denning. And uh, Denning was uh, was doing both development projects and also doing uh, also had a home building business as well. So doing that around Washington. And uh, almost randomly, uh, somebody I knew really well for a long period of time and respected a lot called and, uh, and said, hey, uh, what, what's going on? What are you, what are, what are you doing? Uh, this is Kevin Plank. And I said, oh, hey, Kevin, how are you? I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working real hard down here in D.C. Things are great. He said, you know, I've got some really interesting things I want to talk about and think about in Baltimore. Why don't you come up and talk to me? So kind of took it from there. Came up to the new office in, uh, in Locust Point. And uh, went and talked to Kevin. And I think at that minute, I really realized how far the company had come uh, and, and just how much had changed and just sort of the scale and size of what they were doing. So Kevin toured me around the, the new offices that he had in Locust Point and, and uh, was really impressed, obviously, by what was there. But we went back to Kevin's office and he had some really interesting pictures of different things around the country uh, regarding campuses and other types of place and he said hey you know I want to create something like this in, in, in Baltimore for Under Armour I also have these other really interesting projects I want to do and uh, for lack of a better term we'll call them passion projects he was very interested in this whiskey opening this whiskey mm-hmm. company and whiskey business uh, he was very interested in, in looking literally from his office across the water very interested in this rundown pier in Fells Point that was falling in the water and he started asking me questions about these and what I could I figure out how to get them done and, and, and how would I go about doing them and so on and uh, we talked, and then we uh, continued to talk over the next few months and eventually really engaged on um, pursuing those different ideas. And uh, eventually, after a couple of years of working together, uh, just on kind of a handshake basis, uh, we formed a partnership, and that partnership was called Sagamore Development. Mm-hmm. And Sagamore Development's focus was uh, really to help improve the, uh, the environment in Baltimore, to help make Baltimore a more attractive place for, for employers, make, a better, make it a better place for the residents who lived here to live, uh, help create jobs, and uh, and for me that was really exciting. It was the kind of work that really played into to everything I ever wanted to do my whole life. Uh, so we started working specifically on a few projects. One of them was trying to acquire land in Port Covington, um, which eventually became what it is now, which is which is the Port Covington project. The other one was uh, acquiring the the recreation pier uh, mm-hmm. and then turning it into the uh, award-winning hotel. Uh, which is there now, which is the uh, Sagamore Pendry Hotel. And the other one was uh, helping establish and develop uh, this whiskey uh, business. And and I didn't have anything to do with really the whiskey making or any of that, but I had, was tasked with building the entire facility, developing the entire facility, helping with the concepts of, uh, of visitor experience, and then developing a world-class restaurant adjacent to that and being responsible for overseeing and uh, partnering in that. Uh, with uh, with Kevin and also finding other partners from outside, so that was how it all started, and it uh, it led itself down a really unique and, and interesting interesting path. I think um, one of the parts that's different uh, versus other developers and what they're tasked to do is we were also tasked uh, Sagmore Development, uh, myself in particular, and, and eventually my whole team in changing the narrative around the city uh, of Baltimore. And uh, just making sure that, that that narrative that was out there was really about was about what was great in Baltimore and not celebrating what was not so great. And um, I think there was um, 
a lot of meetings where the first, uh, you know, particularly with out of towners, where the first conversation would be had about, oh, I saw the show The Wire, and uh, it was right. a great show. <laughs> and uh, our goal was to make sure that the first thing that rolled off your tongue was not about the show The Wire or the show Homicide that was shot here mm-hmm. or anything along those lines, but instead about the incredible food scene or the, the opportunity for jobs or about the world-class hotel that opened. So you said you and Kevin knew each other before that. How did you guys get connected? So I moved here from Buffalo, New York when I was 15, and I went to high school in, in Maryland for, for four years. So I went to um, Wooten High School, Rockville. Um, one of my best friends, a guy by the name of Billy McDermott, who's also partners in, uh, in Sagamore Whiskey with Kevin, and he was an original Under Armour uh, teammate as well. Um, Billy Mack, we call him, he really wanted to play Division One football. And for whatever reason, he felt if he went to a fifth year of school uh, to play football, which was uh, called a post-grad year, uh, his chances of that happening would be much greater. So he went to school, he signed up to a place called, uh, go to a place called Fork Union Military Academy. So when he signed up for that, it, it turns out about six or eight other uh, young, young men, we'll call them, uh, from, uh, from the Washington region, also signed up for that same thing, and Kevin Plank was one of them. So Billy and uh, Kevin uh, became great friends, and Billy was my best uh, sort of buddy in high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he introduced me to Kevin, sort of my senior year, I guess it was in high school. And then um, I always liked him. He was always just a really fun, interesting, spirited guy. He was very driven, he was on a mission. And um, uh, I love that. And so I became friends with him and, and then stayed, uh, stayed in touch with him and spent time with him throughout my, uh, my, my college years. And then uh, most importantly, when we all graduated, everybody went and did their thing. And Kevin had this uh, really neat idea around a shirt, you know, after, and you've heard the story a million times, so I'm not gonna, not gonna spare, I'm gonna spare you that story, but, but it was a really an amazing story. And, uh, and I was fascinated by it, but most importantly, Kevin was just a really uh, interesting, fun, and driven uh, individual and person who I really enjoyed uh, seeing and hanging out with when I got to. So that was, uh, that was my first interactions with Kevin a long time ago. So I definitely want to focus in on Park Covington, the chapter one groundbreaking um, in 2019. Talk a little bit about what exactly people can expect from that phase of the project, and I wanted to know if it's still on track for fall 2021 completion. Is that still the timeline we're looking at? Yeah, I mean that's uh, timeline hasn't changed, and uh, if it does, if it does uh, things slow up at all, we'll find somewhere else to pick them up in pace. That's what we do. That's a, that's our industry and our business. Just to go back a little bit before we go forward. So when you're doing a project of this magnitude, uh, particularly in a city, and this, this is what I call basically an annex to a city, we're annexing a significant area onto a city. The Under Armour campus area pulled out of it. What we're doing in Port Covington beyond that is 45 city blocks alone. So it's just massive. Um, so you have to be really thoughtful, particularly about the first uh, um, uh, groupings of buildings and uses and infrastructure that you put in. So what you have to do is go out and really put together the entire idea, the plan, and then you have to raise the capital around it. Capital for something like a project like this uh, requires uh, multiple uh, groups to come in. And uh, so in this case, the way it works is you have what's called debt, which is no different than when you buy a house, right? You have your, your debt portion, you have your equity portion, no different than you buy a house. That's the cash portion you put in. Then you have, in this case, you have your bond portion, which is, the, uh, which is for the public infrastructure. 
The bond portion of this is the smallest piece. We're using a small piece of the TIF, and we expect somewhere around um, between $700 million and a billion dollars of construction to start and to finish in that time frame um, by, uh, by, by the time frame we just discussed. What we would hope is that um, other buildings will follow on, that will go above and beyond the first phase. The first phase, uh, which includes um, 15 pad sites and five buildings on top of those pad sites, uh, will all be delivered in that time frame, uh, which puts us into the fall of uh, fall of 21. I think one of the really interesting things about Port Covington that's that's been uh, you know once in a while you get you get lucky and um, we started Port Covington the horizontal portion so the roads the water the sewer we started in May of this year ironically it poured we had a grand uh, sort of a uh, groundbreaking and it just poured sideways rain. And then we proceeded to have the driest series of months of my entire career. We literally had five months of you know, almost no rain. And uh, I'm sure it was uh, drought type conditions and not good for many places like golf courses and, and people's front lawns and so on. But I will tell you, it was absolutely amazing for us. We were able to go so hard and so fast on so much work um, around Port Covington and the horizontal portion that we became sort of ahead of schedule um, in a way that allowed us to, uh, to do some further work uh, as we move forward before we go actually vertical, which is building, uh, building the different buildings that we're about to start. And I remember a lot of discussion when the, the groundbreaking took place about Cybertown, especially lots of cyber and tech-related leases coming. Aside from, we know Data Tribe, Allegis, uh, and Evergreen, can you tell us anything about where leasing is at this point? Any new companies that you can tell us about, or who can we expect to be taking these spaces? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of confidentiality around a lot of what I'm doing right now. But yes, there are multiple other leases, both large and small, for uh, either portions of buildings, potentially whole buildings, and then also many leases for smaller uh, uh, smaller portions within some of the buildings that will be in Port Covington. Uh, we've seen a lot of buzz. Uh, the buzz is around cyber, around life sciences, and around education. Um, I think the groundbreaking for us was probably the moment where inbound traffic became greater than outbound traffic as far as our leasing team. What we realized in really studying the Baltimore market uh, and really uh, in understanding it is that this is really a build it and they will come market. Any class A office that has gone up is leased, is 100% leased, at least at uh, very, very high prices, particularly when it's amenitized well. And so uh, we felt really comfortable that building these buildings uh, with, uh, with pre-leasing, uh, limited albeit, but some pre-leasing um, would, uh, would be a successful outcome for us. So we feel really good about where we're at with our leasing. Uh, we feel really good with where we're at with our placemaking, which we're going to be working on as well, which is just building an incredible place for all, all types of people to come visit. Uh, we think that that's going to be a real driver here in Port Covington. Can you give people an idea of the kinds of companies that you're going after and kind of what's the process like of, of pitching Port Covington? Well, I think, like we said, there's two, there's two, uh, there's two ways to go get um, you know, uh, tenants and, and so on. One way is to you know, call them and go approach them and say, hey, we think we have something better for you. Another way is for them, the inbound calls. Uh, and we do see a good bit of inbound calls as well, particularly for larger tenants. So the, the way that we handle it um, in, in, um, in Port Covington and around our project is we really, quite frankly, show off the city of Baltimore. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't um, necessarily do to the level that we do. And the reason we do that is because we think that anybody that we can get to come visit the city of Baltimore, spend a night here, uh, to, uh, take a tour on the water taxi, uh, go to one or two of our restaurants. There's some incredible restaurant tours in town. 
So anytime we can kind of connect the water to the hospitality, to, to, the, to the access to 95, train station, um, access to airports and so on, it really adds up for a really compelling story. I will say that I believe, and, and this is, um, you might say, oh, I'm paid to think this way, but, but not really. My partners and I believe that we are batting uh, 1,000 on when we bring potential clients, potential investors into Baltimore to actually spend that time to, uh, to show them how great the city is and all the different things going on. Um, it works. It works every time. And it gets people really interested. And even if it's not for them right now at this minute, it's in their mind and they understand that there is some really incredible momentum here and there really is, uh, we're really on the, uh, the, the cusp of a renaissance. Can you give us any idea on when some of the leases and names and things will, will become available? I think this summer, like late spring, early summer, we'll be able to make some much bigger announcements, uh, maybe a little bit sooner. But yeah, we have, uh, we have some very big things in the works. And uh, we're, uh, we're comfortable that they are, they're, they're absolute game changers. We know Goldman Sachs has put hundreds of millions behind this project. Uh, how did that deal get done? Give people a little background on that. But also, what's the value of having a partner like Goldman Sachs on a project like this? Well, two, two parts. We'll start, start with the first one with, uh, with Goldman. I mean, uh, we originally, after going through the process of getting the rezoning done, getting the, uh, the TIF done and so on, we, we went in the market to try and find a, a partner. Again, this is an annex to a city. This is tens of billions of dollars of economic revenue over time. This is a seven, at least $7 billion in construction alone. So we knew we needed a, a deep-pocketed partner, but I think more importantly, what we needed was a partner with vision and a partner with shared ideals. And after going out to the market and talking to different folks out there, uh, we realized that it was probably in our best interest to focus as much on what the uh, long-term vision would be for Baltimore as anything. And Goldman shared in the vision for Baltimore. Uh, Goldman shared in the same ideals that we shared in. And it became evident very quickly that finding a way to get to a, a deal uh, uh, that worked for both uh, Goldman Sachs and myself and Kevin Blank was in our best interest. Uh, we really, the, the vision was, was really there to take this to the next level. Took a few months, got there, and we closed. And here we are a few years later, arguably with uh, one of the most important and impactful projects in the United States of America, with Goldman as our partner. So it's really, really been an incredible journey with them, but more importantly, it's been um, um, having Goldman involved in your city uh, cannot be understated. And we know there has been a little bit of controversy around the project as it's kind of progressed people having concerns about the issues of the TIF process or um, Port Covington qualifying for Opportunity Zone funding. Do those kinds of issues uh, slow the momentum of the project and kind of how do you address people's concerns? To be honest with you, do they slow it? No. Many of the concerns that I've heard so far uh, around many of the topics, uh, the TIF was very different than Opportunity Zone. So let's break those down a little bit. Around the TIF, I think what it really came down to was there are so many needs in Baltimore in so many places, and there's so much incredible opportunity as well. And I think what the TIF did for us, which was really, really, I mean, in, in my opinion, a productive and positive thing, is it brought so many different stakeholders into the room together, and it allowed us to have an open dialogue and a conversation around, around what this could do for the city. And I think what it did for me is it let me hear a lot of what people's concerns were and what their fears were. And I think that was as important as anything. Because it, 
I think just like um, just like I wanted them to hear what we were saying and what we were trying to do, we needed to hear what other folks were saying. And I think what happened in that process, we spent a couple of days basically in a conference room. Um, uh, basically, I would call groups of the opposition and, and groups for the poor covering the project. And I think getting all that on the table allowed us to listen and allowed us to find common ground. And what I realized through that process was I don't care politically what your ideology is or what it is exactly you do for a living or any of this. There was a lot more common ground in everything that all of us were working towards than anything. And I think it just takes sort of being, being in a room together and actually talking to each other, to each other, not over each other, not past each other, to realize that. And through that process, we were able to take uh, a majority of that table, almost all of them, and, uh, and all get on the same side of the table. It wasn't that one came over to one side or one went to the other. We met in the middle and we found ways to work together. And I'm so proud of some of those partnerships and some of those, uh, some of those ideals that have come out of that. You know, the, 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 the best is yet to come, but I think that there's no question about it. Uh, without that process, and I would say what, what people call controversial process uh, at the time, we wouldn't be where we're at today. Uh, and I wouldn't be nearly as proud as I am of, of the work we've done so far and the work that we're about to do around uh, helping the communities and making sure that the communities really do see a benefit from this entire project. And you said that kind of controversy was, was different than the Opportunity Zone situation. Well, I think the Opportunity Zone controversy, if you want to call it that, was an article that was written that I understand it's got a point of view that was meant to uh, find something that was wrong. Uh, it was all news to us, the way it was written. It wasn't even written by local people. It was reprinted locally and so on. So I don't really have much to say about that other than, you know, that, that's a very different situation than, than the situation around uh, working inside the constraints of the TIF and finding common ground there. I will say this. Opportunity Zones were designed to create jobs, to help places uh, uh, build their communities. And I can tell you with certainty that there are, are very few places in the United States that have as organized a coalition uh, as much forward energy and inertia and as much positive outcome both for a city, a region, and its local neighbors as Port Covington. So in our mind, we've never seen anything that really fits the Opportunity Zone requirements quite like the, uh, the land, that we, uh, land that we currently hold and, and what we're getting ready to start on. I mean, one of the things that you have to think about here, which is many people don't think about it much because they haven't seen the results yet, the communities are starting to see a lot of results, but outside of the communities, they haven't. We formed the uh, SB7, which was the South Baltimore six communities plus Port Covington. Those communities are receiving direct benefit currently, they have been for years, uh, from anything that we can do in Port Covington. Much of it is around technical expertise and providing, providing um, um, just insight and expertise on anything those communities want to do. And I think that that's a really important factor uh, to, to consider and understand. Port Covington is just one piece of the direct effect. Beyond the SB6 communities, SB7 communities, we have a citywide initiative as well. We've done work all over the city in different places, doing different things uh, already, uh, um, pre-funding coming in from any sources outside of private funds, um, getting ready to, uh, to really help take the city, and in particular the, uh, the communities adjacent to us, to another level. I think the thing is, is our intentionality around making sure that the companies and people who 
want and need the jobs inside the city of Baltimore, get first look, first crack at those jobs is what we're really pushing for citywide. We want to make sure that this opportunity is there for city residents who want to work first. And, uh, and we want to make sure that they're job ready and job preparedness is there as well. Uh, we're working with other nonprofit partners for that. That's what we think about all the time. And we think that's going to be the legacy, the legacy of this project. The, the surrounding areas of South Baltimore 6, uh, plus the, uh, the citywide uh, benefits that come off of it around jobs, job creation and job training. Mm -hmm. And so are you guys pursuing Opportunity Zone funding now? Can you give us any information about you know, who might be investing in kind of the Opportunity Zone fund world? Um, the, who's, in, who's investing and who isn't is confidential. But yes, we are out raising uh, Opportunity Zone funds for the project right now. Can you tell us anything? I think the, the TIF bonds are set to go to market next month. Is that still right? Yeah, that's the plan. We should be uh, issuing, uh, going out marketing and then uh, hopefully uh, be on the market and issue at some point in, uh, in March or uh, at the latest, I would say going into April. And uh, yeah, we're really excited about that. What many people don't know is they hear the stories about, you know, issuance and, and, and bonds and all this. We've never, to date, we've never received a, a single uh, penny from any of the TIF or any of kind of uh, government uh, funding from, uh, from the city in particular, nothing. So uh, it'll be, it'll be uh, an exciting time to actually have the city uh, all the way invested in the project and starting with the infrastructure portion, uh, building roads, uh, water, and sewer. Uh, again, all the TIF dollars, those dollars get spent on public space. Mm -hmm. There's no TIF dollars that go inside anywhere private. It's on, it's on streets, it's on sidewalks, it's on parks, it's on all of, uh, all of that type of infrastructure. A couple of specific projects as well um, that I know our newsroom has been interested in. Yeah. So the Rye Street Market project, what's the status of that and kind of our vendors coming on, what can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, talk about Rye Street. Let's just talk a little bit about kind of the, the ethos of the project to begin with, which is Rye Street Market, the residential buildings around it, the office buildings around it, and so on. So what we're doing in Port Covington is we're creating a sense of place, and we're creating a high-quality place to start. So the first series of buildings, which include the Rye Street Market, which is adjacent to the distillery, directly across the street, and we'll recreate a park in the center of the two of those, Will be of extremely high quality. The experience will be will be uh, an incredible one. Um, I think one of the biggest things of all that we're trying to do with the first phase of Port Covington is create what we call a human scale. We really want the first phase of Port Covington to feel very approachable. We don't want it to be too high, too big, or too too far up in the air. And the reason why is because it just doesn't feel uh, very comfortable sometimes to walk into a cavern of buildings. And what's so interesting about Port Covington is it's so much land, uh, you know, it, over 200 acres down there, that you're able to take areas uh, and focus and do much lower density with much more open space. And I think that is not something, quite frankly, that uh, developers in general are normally allowed to do. Normally you're given a, a piece of land, whatever it is, a, a you know, half acre, an acre, whatever it is, you know, a certain amount of square footage. And you have to make that, maximize that land and make that land work. Uh, and usually that means you have to cover as much as possible and go as high as possible. In the first phase of Port Covington, that's not what we're doing. We're going lower, uh, we're going more human scale, we're going more approachable, we're going more open space, and we're going more detail. Um, again, because we have so much land to go above and beyond that where we can build these larger buildings. So I think that's gonna be the first thing that you'll notice uh, as you walk down there. There's a tremendous amount of attention to detail uh, that will be in the landscape, in the landscaping in Port Covington in the first phase as well. For example, the entire street is a curbless street that can be closed down for festivals and, and, uh, and shows and all kinds of different things whenever you want to do it. 
Uh, it's got lots of plantings, so there'll be areas that'll be shaded. Uh, there'll also be areas that it will just feel softer than, than what you see in many, in many cases. But I think that's really important to point out because there's this very significant investment uh, going into some of, the, uh, some of the landscape, the hardscape, the, the buildings and the open space down there initially that will really set it apart from almost anywhere else in the region. Trying to make sure it's very Baltimore, trying to make sure it's very, um, it's very contemporary and, and, and works for today's uh, user, but also making sure that it has a feel of warmth and a feel of, uh, of genuine um, comfort uh, that makes you want to come down there and, uh, and spend time. Last culminating question, what has been the most challenging part about this development so far and then what's the thing that gets you most excited about it? Well, you know, one of our goals here for the entire project is to make sure that we are uh, creating a project where the jobs and the job creation goes to the people that need it the most. And I think that what I've realized through that process is just how incredibly intentional you have to be. I have an incredible team, um, Vice President of Community Affairs, Mark Brody, who heads up a lot of this, uh, and we, Alicia Wilson was here before him. She did an unbelievable job as well, putting, putting a lot of this together. But what we've done is get very deep into the community, into the nonprofit community and philanthropic community to help create uh, a pipeline for people to take advantage of the opportunities in Port Covington. And I think um, the biggest challenge that I've seen so far um, for uh, our team is not just making sure people get the jobs, we can do that. I feel more comfortable that we can make sure the people who need the jobs will get the jobs. It's making sure those people are ready to do those jobs and, and accept those jobs. That's where the, uh, you know, the, the, the variety of folks uh, inside the philanthropic community um, and these nonprofits really, really become helpful. Our partnership with Build uh, has really been incredible. Uh, Joe Jones, uh, Center for Urban Families, it's the same kind of relationship where we've always had a great relationship with Joe, but really finding common ground with him and finding how we can work with him to help support uh, these different initiatives uh, to help people uh, get to the jobs, get to the work, and then create uh, good careers with great paying jobs uh, that can take them, um, take them into the next phase of their lives uh, is, uh, has been incredible. So that's probably one of the biggest challenges we have. The other challenge that we have from a very practical standpoint and real estate and construction folks can understand this is that the environment we have been in uh, for the past number of years since this project was concepted has seen significant increases in construction costs. So construction costs of all materials, labor costs of all types have really risen significantly. They've risen much more significantly than the, than the market has as far as rents and, and returns. So you're constantly outpacing, you're outpacing the, uh, the cost to build this is outpacing the return. So what we've had to do is find uh, clever and, um, and unique ways to, to bring the cost down on the project while still keeping the intent and the quality up. Unfortunately for us, we have a variety of, uh, of construction partners, some big and some small, but uh, you know, having partners like uh, Whiting Turner and Tim Regan, a massive uh, construction company, just happens to be from here. Uh, Clark Construction is another group that's done an incredible job. Uh, they've, they've done a lot to, to help us uh, be innovative and be thoughtful uh, at all times. And there's a lot of other smaller groups that have, have done the same. Um, as far as opportunities go, I mean, granted, you know, I wake up every day very excited to come to work. It's just like the beginning of the story I told you about the geraniums. I'm excited to come to work because I know what we are creating and I know what it's going to look like a few years from now. I know how many people are going to get, get to use it. 
so the opportunity there uh, for me is just is pure upside. I think that Baltimore is in a renaissance. It's tough to see sometimes because there are issues, social issues, there, there are crime issues in certain parts of the city. But when you're on the inside of the city and you see so many different facets and sides of it, you start to realize that there is so much positive going on in the city as well. Uh, it starts with uh, it starts with the determination and grit of the entrepreneurial community and the development community uh, to keep moving forward and keep building things. Um, I can only hope it goes faster than what people think uh, because I really want to have as much of uh, my life to enjoy it and, and be around for it and, and really see it happen. But I know someday that uh, they'll be looking back on Port Covington and several of the other projects in Baltimore and they will be recognized as catalysts that took Baltimore to the, uh, uh, to the next level. Thanks so much for talking to me about this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.